Hi, I'm Philip Santillan, pastor of Clarity Church, and I want to thank you for taking the time to listen or view this podcast of a message from one of our Sunday gatherings. Before we get going here, I just wanted to communicate to you the deep conviction we have regarding this message. This free message resource is not intended as a broadcast ministry, which would create virtual attenders listening from home rather than getting involved in their local church. We hope that no matter where you are on your faith journey, that this podcast is only supplemental to your relationship with the Lord and in no way replaces the local church that you should be plugged into or the pastor God has put over your life to lead you and care for your soul. So please enjoy this incomplete portion of this past week's gathering. We have prayed that God would use it in a profound way in your life and that from it, you would gain clarity on who Christ is. Thanks for having me back, Clarity. It's, um, I don't say this just as a formality. It's always great to be with you. You guys are so welcoming, and um, I really appreciate it. Um, so, the Beatitudes. How's the series been going? Man, I can't, it's really hard to preach on one verse, except that you, you get to memorize your sermon text. Um, but, uh, man, I really am psyched that you guys are doing this. My family... And our family devotions have been uh, working our way through the Sermon on the Mount slowly. I've got a nine, seven, and almost three-year-old. And uh, so we talk about these things. Um, we talk about, you know, recently we've talked about each of the Beatitudes and, and what does that mean. And <laughs> whenever I read a Beatitude and then ask my kids, so what do you guys think that means? I'm always curious what they have to say because I don't always know what they mean either. And I want some time to think about it while they think about it. Um, anyway, I, I, I love the Sermon on the Mount. I love the Beatitudes. So... This is, a, this is um, a treat to be able to preach on this. Um, so here's, here's what's going on with me. I'm, uh, I'm training for my first Ironman triathlon this year. Do, do I have any triath- triathletes out there? One? Nice. Okay, you and me. All right, great. Um, if you're, if you're um, the Ironman is a re- kind of a ridiculous race. Uh, it's a 2.4-mile swim followed by a 112-mile bike ride, followed by a marathon, a 26-mile run, like all at once. Um, I'm going to be 40 next year, and I've never really been into like sports cars, and um, so I'm not going to do that thing at midlife, and I kind of like the wife I have, so I'm not going to do the whole like trophy wife thing. She is a trophy wife. That's what I meant to say. Let's back it up. <laughs> I like the trophy wife I have. And um, so this is kind of my midlife crisis thing, is doing an Ironman. And um, it terrifies me pretty much. But the most terrifying part is the swim for me. 2.4 mile swim. Just to put that in perspective, that's 155 lengths of an Olympic pool. Um, it's terrifying to me because the only part, it's the only part of the race where you can drown. Um, and so um, it's just kind of a stupid, it's just kind of a stupid uh, amount of swimming. Um, and um, unfortunately, they don't do Ironman in the pool. They do it in a lake. So it's not like if you get tired, you can just sort of like hang on the lane line and talk to the guy next to you about March Madness and pretend that you're not peeing in the pool and grab a drink of water. Like, you just have to keep swimming the entire time. And so I've been spending a lot of time in the pool, and uh, I enjoy it 
way more than I thought I would. Um, swimming lap after lap, a couple hours a week. Um, in part because my mind just sort of tunes out. I, I just, it just kind of goes into neutral. Because Ironman swimming doesn't take a lot of mental focus. You're not really trying, trying to go fast. You're just trying to stay steady. And so my mind just kind of wanders. And uh, my mind drifts so much that, actually, I just want to tell you this quick story. My mind drifts so much that, no joke, last week I, I, um, I swam for an hour, not realizing that I actually had my swimsuit on inside out. Um, so I got out of the pool after swimming for an hour and stood up and started tumbling off and realized that the, like the built-in underwear was on the outside. <laughs> like a superhero. And the reason I tell you that is um, <laughs> this sermon sucks. Um, the reason I tell you that is because it's a funny introduction. But also because, um, just to illustrate how my mind goes into neutral, uh, amazingly goes into neutral, and it's always fascinating to me where my mind goes, stop laughing at me, it's always fascinating to me where my mind goes when it is allowed to go into neutral, when, like when you're not focused on something, when you're not trying to think about something in particular, where your mind drifts is, is interesting to me because I think that what is happening when that happens, when your mind just is allowed to drift, what's actually happening is that your mind stops setting the agenda for what it's going to think about and your heart takes over and starts setting the agenda for what you're going to think about. Does that make sense? When our minds drift, what's happening is our mind stops setting the agenda for what it's going to focus on, and our heart starts setting the agenda for where our mind is going to go. So, just to be totally transparent with you, my, um, when my mind drifts, my heart sends my mind um, into a lot of worry. I worry a ton about Things that are worth worrying about and things that are not worth worrying about. Um, my heart tends to send my mind into thinking about the conversations I've had throughout the day and what I said and what I wish I would have said and what I wish I hadn't have said and what I'll say next time. I tend to obsess over that. So tomorrow in the pool, I'll be thinking the entire time about, oh, the sermon. I wish I would have said this and I wish I wouldn't have said this and like tell the underwear story. Um, my mind, um, my heart tends to send my mind to sex because, obviously, um, my heart sends my mind all kinds of places, but it rarely sends my mind to thinking about God and godliness. Like, it just doesn't. I really wish that it did. It does for some people, apparently. When their mind goes into neutral, their heart's send their minds into thoughts of God's goodness to the ways that he's showed up for them, the ways that he's loved them, the ways he's come through, who he is, what he does, what he's like. I'd like my mind to do that because I'd like my heart to be like that. But that's just not my reality right now. I guess that's just my confession. Um, the most difficult texts to preach 
Here's why I'm telling you this. The most difficult texts, Bible texts to preach are the texts where you really haven't mastered it in your own life. And so whatever I say in the next few minutes here, I want you to know that I view myself in this moment as a fellow traveler with you, if your heart's messy too. Um, this isn't going to be the kind of thing where I stand up here and tell you what you should do from my experience having mastered this thing. This is going to be a thing where I say, man, let's, um, let's confess together that most of us probably have pretty messy hearts and let's think together about how that can change and how Jesus fits into all of that because um, it's okay not to be okay. I think you guys say this, I say this all the time, it's okay not to be okay. It's just not okay to stay there. Okay, so um, Phil, like he said, has been walking you guys through the Beatitudes of Jesus for the past few weeks, known as, also known as the blessings of Jesus. And so I get to talk about the sixth blessing, the sixth Beatitude this morning in Matthew 5, 8, which very simply says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. Blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. So all I really want to do this morning, this is pretty simple, is I want to help us come to grips with what it means to be pure in heart and then what it means to see God. Because I don't, I think if I kind of read the landscape right, I think that churchgoers, Christians, I I think we tend to think we know what those terms mean, but I think we don't. I, I think most of us have a, misshapen understanding of what especially see God means in this text. Okay, so that's where we're going to go. Let's start with pure in heart. In the imagery of the Bible, the heart is the center of a person's entire being. It's their personality. The the Bible doesn't mean um, totally different how we use the, the, the word heart in the English language except it it has a little bit, it has, it has the concepts that we use with heart along with like your gut, all wrapped into one. So, so this is the, um, the, your personality, who you are, what you're like is the driver in the Bible of what you feel, um, what you want, who you want. It's the place where motivations live, where habits live, where both virtues and vices take root. It's what controls our mind when we don't have a firm grip on, when our mind doesn't have a firm grip on us. And sometimes it even controls us when our minds do have some control and it can override our better judgment. The heart is very, very, very powerful in the Bible. And of course, according to the Bible, that's a big part of our problem as human beings, right? Our hearts are are sick. They're broken. In the first chapters of the Bible, Adam and Eve uh, break their own hearts by choosing to love something more than God, which that always results in breaking your own heart. And when that happens, it breaks God's heart, and as a result, the hearts of the rest of humanity are broken along the way. The prophet Jeremiah probably expresses it most desperately this concept of of a broken heart and what the human heart is like probably most pessimistically in the bible when he says the heart is deceitful above all things and beyond cure is what jeremiah says 
You can't cure what ails the human heart. It's too broken to put back together. It's Humpty Dumpty. All the king's horses and all the king's men. By the way, have you ever thought about, or never mind. I was going to say, what are the horses doing trying to put Humpty Dumpty back together again? All the king's horses and all the, have you ever thought about that? How do the horses? Squirrel. Um, sometimes my mind drifts even when I'm preaching. Okay, so Jeremiah, the heart is beyond cure. Jesus, Jesus now, Jesus picks up on this trend of the Bible talking about the sickness of the heart and he amplifies it, talks about it a ton in the Gospel of Matthew itself. So um, in uh, Matthew 5, he says, you've heard that it was said you shall not commit adultery. Okay, so that's like an outward action. But I say to you that anyone who looks at a woman lustfully has already committed adultery with her in his heart. In chapter 12, he says, either make the tree good and its fruit will be good or make the tree bad and its fruit will be bad for a tree is recognized by its fruit. So he's saying you can tell what a tree is like on the inside if you look at its fruit. Okay. Uh, In Matthew 15, he says, what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defiles a person. And then Matthew 23, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first cleanse the inside of the cup and of the plate, that the outside also may be clean. You are like whitewashed tombs, which look beautiful on the outside, but on the inside are full of the bones of the dead. So this is a huge deal to Jesus. I don't want to say that Jesus didn't care at all about what we actually do, but, but he's absolutely convinced that what we do is always a result of what's going on inside. Our mouths and our hands are just the instruments of what our heart wants to do, right? So, so you can only murder someone if you have murder in your heart. There's no such thing as a person who murders someone who isn't a murderer, according to Jesus. You can only use pornography if your heart is a total mess sexually. You can only be cruel or callous or nasty to another person in person or on Facebook if you have nastiness in your heart. I've met people, and I'm not an angel on Facebook or social media or whatever, but I've met people who are really, really nasty on social media. And you want to say, ah, but they're not really like that. Yes, they are. That's actually who they are. Our hearts are who we really are, which for most of us kind of sucks, right? Kind of sucks. Like, I like to be an optimist about human nature. I would really like to be an optimist. That feels better to me. I like that better. I... um, there's something in me that wants to think of human beings as good by nature. That's how millennials tend to think about human beings. And I'm like, uh, I'm kind of like a millennial wannabe. I was born two years too early to actually technically be a millennial, but I use my phone a ton, so I'm a millennial, I guess. Um, but this is, you know, like we like to think of human beings as good by nature. But when I read the Bible, and when I'm honest with myself, and when I look inside myself, and don't sugarcoat it, 
and try to think of myself accurately and what goes on in my heart accurately. And frankly, when I watch other people and observe what they're like when they think no one's watching, like I'm in real estate, I probably don't need to tell you some of the shady BS that goes on in real estate and probably any business where people say, oh, well, that's just, I mean, that's just business. That's just business. Who you are when you're working isn't who you really are as a person. And Jesus says, yes, it is. If you deceive people at work, you're a deceiver. If you cheat people at work, you're a cheater. If you mislead people at work, you're a liar. Jesus doesn't have a different set of rules for work just because it's business and it's money and it's bottom dollar. What you do is who you are. What you do is what's going on in your heart. And so I just look at the landscape and I can't help but agree with Jesus and Jeremiah that yes, the human heart is desperately sick and looks like it might even be incurable. Okay, so um, here's my question. Why does, it, why does it matter? Like, why should that matter to us? Because, hear me out here. At Clarity Church, you guys are gospel people, right? You believe, like I do, that we're saved by grace alone, through faith alone. That God gives us the gift of Jesus, and he gives us the gift of faith to trust in Jesus, to put our faith in Jesus, that, that that's all a free gift. And it doesn't depend on how good we are or how bad we are, how clean our hearts are. God doesn't count our sin against us if we're in Christ. He only sees Christ's righteousness when he looks at us, not our unrighteousness. He sees Christ's perfect life when he looks at us, not our imperfect life. He sees Christ's faithfulness when he looks at us, not our unfaithfulness, right? So why? Why do we talk about this stuff? Why does it matter? Why can't I just go through life, try to live a mostly good life, not worry too much about the things that I know don't quite line up with God's ideals, and not worry about it too much because Jesus is my, is my safety net. And I know that if nothing else, when I die, I'm going to go to heaven, right? So why does a pure heart matter? Well, the first reason is that Jesus said it. So it matters. If we say we trust Jesus, if we say we follow Jesus, but we live our lives as though what he says doesn't really matter that much, it's hard to see what kind of trust that is, right? It's hard to see what kind of following that is. But more important, I think, is this. Blessed are the pure in heart. Why? For they will see God. Okay, what's that mean? Let me start with what it doesn't mean. What it doesn't mean is see him someday in heaven. I think that's where most people go with this. Blessed are the pure in heart, for if their hearts are pure, then someday they will see God in heaven. Now, man, to me, that doesn't sound like gospel. That sounds to me like if you are good enough to be pure, 
Then you get to go to heaven and see him. That doesn't make any sense to me with the rest of the teaching of scripture. So I don't think that's where he's going here. I don't think this is mainly about going to heaven to see God. The word see has a couple different meanings, right? Um, Like I could say, I see the soundboard back there. What does that mean? Well, it means that the soundboard is within my visual perception. My eyes can see it. Okay? That's one meaning of see. But another meaning uh, for see is, um, you could say, I'm going to go see my friend Dan today. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean that I'm going to stand up here and see Dan right there. Like I can perceive him with my eyes. That's not what that means, right? It means um, I'm going to go see, I'm going to go be with, I'm going to go hang with Dan today. We're going to talk, we're going to catch up, we're going to enjoy each other's company. There's a relationship that we're going to build, we're going to listen to each other, tell stories and, and share our lives with each other. We'll be together, right? That's the kind of seeing that Jesus is talking about in this beatitude. He's not talking about if I'm pure enough, someday I'll go to heaven and there I will see God. He's talking about right now, those who are pure in heart are blessed. Why? Because they enjoy the presence of God. They enjoy the company of and relationship with God himself. Does that make sense? Purity of heart is the indispensable prerequisite for fellowship with God. Now, don't get me wrong, not perfect purity. He doesn't say that. But purity in some measure, and maybe most importantly, increasing growth in purity. A messy heart is what keeps us from God. It's what inhibits our fellowship, our our sense of nearness with him. Not because God sets up some kind of wall between him and us if we're not pure enough. That's not how it works. But because when our hearts are a mess, it's like our vision is clouded. It's like trying to find someone when your ski goggles are fogged and and frosted over. It's like trying to spend time with a friend while your eyes are closed and your ears are plugged. It's just going to be harder to not only just know if the friend is there, but engage with them in any real sense. So I think about the seasons in my life where... God feels far. You've had those seasons? If you've been a Christian for any amount of time, you've had those seasons. When I say season, I might mean a week or I might mean years. But these seasons where God feels distant, when my relationship with him feels cold, and I've come to learn that that has nothing to do with God and everything to do with me. That's one piece of experience that I feel like I'm an expert on (laughs) that I can share with you. That when God feels distant, it's never God. It's always me. Because he's Emmanuel. He's God with us. That's his name. God with us. He's never far from us. It's me. It's my heart. And so when that happens, I have to start diagnosing what's going on here. What's, What's going on in my heart? What do I think about now when my mind slips into neutral? What do I want more than anything else right now? That's a really important diagnostic question for our hearts. What do I want right now more than anything? 
What do I love? Whom do I love? Where is my allegiance right now? What am I giving myself to? Now, if I find myself there, if I find myself in a place where God feels distant, not that he is distant, but I've made him feel distant, what do I do? What do I do there? I want to give two answers, and um, you can probably guess at the first one. The first one's an easier answer, but at least easier to understand and harder to do, I think. The first one is just that we ask God for help, right? I hope that's obvious. In the book of Acts, God is called the cardiognostes. You recognize at least part of that word, right? He is the heart knower. It's called the heart knower. He knows our hearts better than we do ourselves, and he's quick to forgive And he wants to remake us, reshape us, resurrect us, recreate us from the inside out. And so we pray the prayer of David in the Psalms when he says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will become whiter than snow. Create in me a pure heart. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. I don't know why I don't pray that every day. I should. We should. Okay, but what if, what if I don't just want to be forgiven? What if I don't want to just be a forgiven mess for the rest of my life? What if I actually do want to have a different kind of heart? I know that some Christians believe that um, what you do is you settle in for a life where you are forgiven but a total disaster. And that's just the way it works. I I don't believe that. What if I want to be different? What if I... What if I want to see God more often, be with him more often, enjoy him and not feel so distant from him? Is there anything I can do to make that happen? Well, the good news about the human heart, and I don't think we talk about this much. I don't think Christians think on this very much. Because to me, this is great news. The good news about the human heart is that not only do our hearts shape our actions, but our actions shape our hearts. And this is obvious to anyone if you just think about it for a second. Not only does our heart shape our actions, but our actions shape our hearts. So the more we choose to do kind things, the more our hearts actually become kind. The more we choose to love, even when it's hard to choose that, the more loving our hearts actually become. The more we choose to do right when it's hard, the more righteous our hearts actually become. Virtue becomes almost second nature to us because the nature of our hearts change the more we make the hard choices to do good that don't come naturally to us at first. One of the best ways I've ever heard that illustrated is um, by a writer named N.T. Wright. 
And he compared um, this concept to the actions of um, Captain Chesley Sullenberger III. You guys might know the name Sully. Anybody see that movie, Sully? Or you saw it on the news or whatever. If you're not familiar, I don't know how you couldn't be, but um, on January 15, 2009, U.S. Airways Flight 1549 took off from LaGuardia Airport in New York. And um, Sully and his co-pilot had done their usual checks. Everything in their Airbus A320 looked great. And they took off. Two minutes after takeoff, the airplane flies straight into a flock of Canadian geese. Now, one goose in a jet engine is serious. It's probably going to make you turn around and go back and land. But a flock of geese through the engines is disastrous. So both engines start burning. They're severely damaged just as the plane was heading north over the Bronx, which is one of the most populated areas of New York. And Sully and his co-pilot had to make several life-or-death decisions instantly if they were going to save the lives of the people not only on their plane but also on on the ground. Um, So they could see one or two small local airports in the distance, but they did just some quick calculations and realized, I don't think we're going to make it to those, and if we try to make it to those and miss, then we're going to land in the city. Um, They thought briefly about trying to land on the New Jersey Turnpike, but that's a highway, so there's no way you're not going to hit cars. And um, so the only option left was the Hudson River. And I'm, I'm sure you can guess, landing on water is incredibly dangerous. Airliners land at 150 to 200 miles an hour. And so one small mistake, the nose down a little bit too far, or if the wings tip just a little bit and dip into the water, that plane's going to do a cartwheel and break apart and sink and everyone's going to die. Now, in the just over two minutes that they had between the bird strike and the landing, Sully and his co-pilot had to do at least the following things. This is an abbreviated list. They had to shut down the engines so they didn't burn up, They had to set the right airspeed and figure out what the right airspeed was so that the plane would glide as long as possible without any power. They had to get the nose of the plane down to maintain speed. They had to disconnect the autopilot and override the flight management system. They had to activate the ditch system, which seals the vents and the valves in the plane to make the plane as waterproof as possible when it hits the water. And most importantly, they had to fly and then glide this plane. Planes are made out of metal in the air. They have to fly this plane without engines and glide it and make a fast left turn so that they would come down facing south going with the flow of the river. Not to mention they had to know immediately which way the river's flowing. They had to straighten the plane out then from the sharp tilt left so that on landing the plane would be exactly level from side to side so that one wing didn't dip in and tear off and send the plane cartwheeling. And then just before landing, they had to get the nose back up just enough so that if the nose is too far down, the plane's going to go straight into the water and kill everybody. If it's too far up, the back of the plane's going to hit and slap the front down and the plane will break in half and kill everybody. They had to make all of these decisions and perform all of those actions in just over two minutes. Less time than it takes to make a pot of coffee. 
And you know the rest of the story, right? They landed perfectly. They got everyone out of the plane and onto the wings. Everyone got rescued. And after the landing, people started talking about this in the media. And most people said one of two things. Number one, it's a miracle. Now, I don't want to discount the possibility that it was a miracle. But when I hear miracle in the media, what I hear people saying is luck. Like Sully didn't have much to do with it. And the second thing that people said was that it was almost like second nature to Sully. Almost like it just came naturally to him. And neither of those are true. In fact, Sully had been preparing for those two minutes for 30 years. Learning to fly, learning what to do in emergencies, practicing training, doing it again and again and again and again, practicing making quick, consequential decisions 10,000 times so that on the 10,001st time, when it really mattered, the actions that he performed were second nature to him. The actions he took weren't just miraculous, but they also weren't natural. Like, not any of us could have just done it. The actions required to save everyone on that plane had become second nature to him, built on 30 years of small choices requiring effort and concentration to do something that's good and right but doesn't come naturally. Where am I going with this? That's exactly how the human heart works. That's exactly how the human heart works. When we make the choice to be kind, especially when it's hard to choose kindness, we become more kind. Kindness isn't natural to us. That's not natural to our hearts because our hearts are broken. They're messy. They're not naturally kind. They're not kind by default. But as we choose kindness again and again and again, kindness becomes second nature to us. Kindness becomes easy. It becomes what our heart is. It becomes who we really are. When we choose to love, when we choose patience, when we choose generosity, when we choose purity, a thousand little hard choices over the course of years, purity becomes second nature. And when it becomes second nature, it's not hard anymore because it's who we are. It becomes what our heart is. It becomes who we really are. That's amazing to me. That's amazing to me that God designed our heart that way. God, our Father, invites us to himself. He invites us not just to be saved and go to heaven. Like, I want to know what life should... I want to have life before death, not just life after death. God invites us into relationship with... He invites us to come and see him. And he gives us the grace and the opportunity to make the small choices day by day that will shape our heart and become who we are. It's what he wants us. It's what he wants for us. It's what he's designed us for. To be people of pure heart who see him. I'm out of time. Let's pray.